Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to River Oaks. We are so glad that you are with us or worshiping, uh, worshiping with us online. And um, if you are new to our church, my name is Brian. I'm one of the youth pastors that we have on staff. Um, and if you are new to our church, you probably have also recognized uh, the fact that there are a few different faces who have been up on this stage for the last couple weeks. And that is because our lead teaching pastor, David Beatty, has been on sabbatical um, and he should be returning in just a matter of weeks. And we are excited to have him return uh, but that just means that you are stuck with me today, so I apologize. But um, I am excited to be with you, and uh, we are continuing in Unit 2 of our sermon series on uh, the book of Romans in a, a sermon, Part 2, uh, Unit 2 of um, a unit that we are calling I Am Not Ashamed. And if you were to ask what our church is all about, we have seven core values that many of our members uh, might be able to mention offhand. Um, some of those would be things like that we are uh, spirit-led or prayer-fueled or next-gen focused. And today's message, one of those um, values that we are going to uh, reinforce is the fact that we are a missions-minded church. So what that means is that we are not only all about praying for our missionaries and financially supporting missionaries, but we are also in the business of trying to send out people from our church into the community, into Winston-Salem, into Clemens, into Louisville, into um, expanding the state. Uh, we've sent people to mis on mission projects um, to, to go out and to serve in places like West Virginia and uh, Mississippi, and even to the ends of the world. We have uh, a team in Africa right this very moment with uh, Pastor Sonny, who's trying to look into different options uh, for orphanages and places that our church can send more people to to serve. Well, today's message also builds off of last week's sermon uh, the pastor Sonny gave, and um, it's, it's built on a foundational verse. It's a continuing thought that Paul, the Apostle Paul had found in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. And Paul was saying this, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And, the, saved. and this verse emphasizes the fact that salvation is a matter of calling of, on the Lord, but the sobering truth of the matter is that not everybody has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are there any math people in the room, people that, that you love numbers? Um, my mom was a math teacher when I was growing up, and so naturally that meant that I was terrible at math um, and that um, I, I was doomed from, from the beginning. But by the grace of God and a lot of tutoring from my mom, um, I was able to get through math. And whether you like math or not, we're going to, um, just for the next few moments, enter into statistics um, for first period class. Welcome, you have arrived. And uh, some of you, you have PTSD already. It's okay, I'm right there with you. Uh, but I'm going to share a couple statistics with you as we began, begin our time in God's Word um, about what is going on around the world as it relates to um, being sent. The first of those uh, statistics is that there are currently somewhere around 7.9 billion people living on earth. Now about 85% of the world, which comes out to roughly 6.7 billion people, uh, believe that there is a God. Now, however, I just want to make, make sure that we are all under the understanding that just believing in a God is not the same as believing in Jesus Christ, the one true Son of God. So in the world, there are roughly 2.38 billion, billion people who call themselves a Christian. Now, with that statistic in mind, it's not our place to judge whether somebody tr truly has an understanding 
of faith. Um, that's ultimately up to God. We, we hope that we can come alongside people that God has put in our place to, to help them understand what that truly means, that they would live that out. But I think that we can likely agree that there are many people who claim to be a Christian uh, that, that don't live that out in word and deed and have little fruit to show of their walk, but claim to be a Christian. So let's just say, though, that that number, 2.38 billion people, is true, all right, for, for the sake of math. That means that there are 5,520,000,000 people who do not follow Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Now, Christians, sometimes we get a bad rap from those who are not believers uh, because they think that we dwell on the doom and gloom uh, realities that are out there. And, and there's two realities, that I, one of two realities that we are all going to have to face one day. And the first of those is that there really is a place called heaven. There is a God of the universe that desperately wants to have a relationship with all people, including you and me and all the people around the world. And one day, if we are faithful with what God has revealed himself uh, to, to us about himself, then what, hopefully one day we will all hear, um, well done, good and faithful servant. You may enter into the joy of your master. And there's another sobering truth that many people are going to have to understand as well, and that is the fact that there is really a place, there really is a place called hell. And if somebody has not placed their faith and their hope and trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, then there really is a place where they are going to end up in, in a Christless hell. And so it's the mandate of believers to help go and share the gospel of Jesus Christ to that 5.5 billion people who do not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And the simplest way to, to become a Christian is to understand the words of Jesus found in John chapter 14, verses six, verse 6, where he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. Jesus here is not saying that he is a way. He's not, instead he's saying that he is the way to access the Father in heaven. And once we have accepted that we have sinned and that we need a Savior and give our life to Christ, then we can learn, lean into the words of the Apostle Paul found in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. What, what Pastor Sonny taught on last week says that everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, there are billion, billions of people that we've already just talked about who do not get this and have likely never heard of Jesus. And for us as believers to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and to just sit on that and not be willing to be sent out on mission wherever we are or to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the world would be the equivalent of what one of my youth leaders, uh, I love this quote that he said, I think I've even said this in a sermon before, but he said it's like being on the Titanic after the Titanic hit the iceberg. And instead of going around and handing everybody a life jacket and helping them, them get on lifeboats, we're going around and just straightening pictures on the wall when there's a mission to save people. And so it's, it's really important for us to get this. Now let's drill down just a little bit more. All right, we're going back into statistics for just a moment, and we're going to look at our own country, dig deeper into the spiritual reality of what's going on in our own nation. As of Wednesday, there were 333,373,690 people living in America. And the Public Religion Research Institute's 2020 Census of American Religion showed that 70% of Americans identifies Christian. Now, we just said a minute ago that 85% of the world identifies a Christian. 
70% here in America claim to. Now, again, I would suggest that number is very generous, and that means that there are roughly 100 million people in America who do not know Jesus. In Harvard University's 2019 freshman class, 39% of students identified as atheists or agnostics, more than the number of Catholics and Protestants combined, which was 34%. So there were more people that identified as atheists or agnostic than those who claimed to be a Christian and either Protestant or Catholic. Now, according to a 2020 Gallup poll, for the first time ever, last, less than half of Americans, 47%, say that they belong to or are members of a local church. Bible reading declined 7% during the first six months of COVID-19 in America. Only 12% of young people ages 18 to 24 identify as evangelical Christians. That's less than one half of the national average. Now, these statistics, I don't know about you, but they sadden me and they break my heart and, and it puts a fire under it. It, it, make, it puts a fire under me and makes me want to go out and make a difference. It makes me want to change something about these statistics that are alarming, not just for our own nation, but for the world. And it's not because I want the statistics to be skewed one way. It's because I want lives to be changed. I want people to understand the joy of the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ that I personally know. I want that for my family members that don't know Jesus. I want that for people uh, that God has put in my path that don't know Jesus. I want that for everyone around the world to, not, to know the hope that I have. Now, I believe that when we encounter Christ, everything about us changes. And we should want that for all of what I call not yet believers. Because that means if there are not yet believers, that means that there's hope. That means that there's opportunities. That means that there are uh, ways that we can share the gospel with others. And the Apostle Paul had a heart for these not yet believers. His whole mission was to evangelize these non-Jewish people who were referred to as Gentiles. And when he said in, verse, in chapter 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, he didn't mean all the Jews who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, but instead everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That means all nations, all tribes, all colors, everyone, period. And then he continues in verses 14 through 15 by launching into a list of rhetorical questions. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless somebody is sent? In essence, the Apostle Paul's argument is seen if we put his six verbs of these verses into the opposite order. And it helps if we look at it in this visual uh, right here on the screen. You see, Christ sends messengers. Let's see, do we have that graphic real fast? There we go. God sends his servants, um, and his servants are to preach. And then people hear that. Hearers believe. Believers call. And then everybody who, is, who calls is saved. So in verse 14, Paul asks whether such a calling on the name of the Lord is even possible. And he begins by analyzing the conditions that are necessary for such a calling. And then he makes it clear that every condition except for one has been met. First, the gospel or the word of faith has to be preached. All right, so that doesn't necessarily mean people like what I'm doing, me doing what I'm doing right now. It means that we, wherever we are, are sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And then second, the message of the gospel, the word of Christ, has to be heard. 
and the voices of its messengers have to be heard throughout the inhabited world. Now, not only does the gospel have to be made known, but in some, to some extent, it has to be understood. So it's one thing just to hear it, but it's another thing to truly understand the gospel. And the missing ingredient is faith. For calling on the name of the Lord is another way of saying believing. It's important that messengers proclaim the gospel, but the hearers also, ha- also have to have some part in this process. They have to hear the word of God, they have to think about what that means, and then believe in their hearts. And this really gets at the heart of what the reformer Martin Luther was trying to push back against the Catholic Church on. He was saying that we are saved, we are justified by our faith in Christ alone, or sola fide. There's this element of faith that has to be represented in our, in our hearts and in our minds. And as a youth pastor, one of the greatest joys that I have is when we're sitting down and, and we, you know, we start with these wily little sixth graders in, in our youth ministry and they're crazy and they're fun and uh, you know, they're making all kinds of fun bodily noises and stuff when they enter into sixth grade. But then over time, and even as sixth graders, but, but especially over time, we see the maturity process, and we see them grow, and we see these what we call aha moments, where one day in a small group, a, a leader is sitting around in a circle, and, and they're just going through the gospel, and then something clicks, and they're like, oh, I get it. I understand, and that's what, that's what it's all about. The faith of, of the students are finally hearing the word of God. And there's something that snaps, something that changes, something, a, a switch that flips, and they finally understand that. And that is one of the greatest joys as youth leaders that we get to have is seeing these aha, aha moments happen. Paul continues in verse 15b, he says, as, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of Jesus Christ. Here, Paul is quoting the prophet Isaiah, which says in chapter 52, verse 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings the good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now one might wonder, what on earth do feet have to do with evangelism? What do feet have to do with sharing the good news of Jesus Christ? Well, how many of you have ever participated in either a half or a full marathon? Any runners in the room, okay? Oh my word, we got David Holcomb. Look around, all right? Start recruiting some of these people, all right? Uh, Maybe you've even trained all these people that just raised their hand. Um, So many of you who are runners, um, and maybe even some of you who are not runners, you might already know this story, but does anybody know why a marathon is 26.2 miles? All right, well, I'm gonna give you a quick history lesson. So we went to math, we're switching to history now, okay? So an important battle was taking place in the year 490 BC between the Greeks and the Persians who had become a powerful force with King Darius I. And the, the Persians were trying to overthrow Greece on the land of Greece and take their land from them. But a, an important battle took place and the Greeks actually, in a town called Marathon, and the Greeks proved 
um, to be more powerful, and they took down the Persians, who were even more powerful than they were, but they won the battle. And even though their country had won, Greeks in Athens had no way of knowing that the battle had been won in their favor. You see, students back then, they didn't have things things like smartphones, push notifications to give them instant news. So they were relying on um, news uh, to, to be delivered via people that would, that would run and travel and share the news with others. Now, legend has it, we don't know if this is true or not, but legend has it that ancient Greek messenger raced from the site of Marathon to Athens, about 42 kilometers, or roughly 26 miles, with news of the victory. He knew that his mission was so important to impart that he finally approached the city and he shared that Greece had won. And the moment that he went into the, the city, city gates and delivered this great news that the Greeks had proved victorious, he dropped dead out of exhaustion because of the way that he had pushed his body to the limits. I believe that I would be much like that runner if I tried to push my body to running 26.2 miles. To bear, but he was bearing the good news, and he wanted people to be able to rejoice in that. And the Apostle Paul alluded to these practices in his letter to the Romans, where he said, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The Greeks had a word for that kind of message. It was the term called euangelion. Um, in other words, it was called a good message or a gospel. So when we hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's the good news. It's the euangelion. Now, news about victor victorious battles aren't the only thing that messengers proclaim. We see all throughout Scripture people proclaiming great news. We see angels showing up on the scenes and, and, and telling about a coming Messiah. I also think about great news that would have transpired after something like John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10 took place. In this scene, it says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. And while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and he reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in, in a place by itself. And then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and he believed, for they had yet not understood the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. And, the, and then the disciples went back to their homes. So what happened in this scene? Mary saw an empty tomb, and she ran to find others to tell them. Peter and the mysterious other disciple, a.k.a. James, the brother of Jesus, um, they were mentioned in verses 3 through 4, and what are they found doing? Running. By the way, James got his PR that day. He outran uh, Peter. But they were in awe of what had happened to Jesus. In verse 8, it says that James saw and he believed. When was the last time that you ran to tell somebody about Jesus? For me, it's been a while. I, I wish I could stand here and tell you about all the times that I try to live this out very well. I mean, granted, I, this, this is my profession. It's what I get paid to do is to tell others about Jesus. 
But in my everyday, day-to-day life, I wish I could tell you that I'm out there running to tell others about Jesus. I, I have been handed good news lots of times in my life. I can recall um, the butterflies that I had in my stomach after a few months of, of uh, dating this really cute little redhead when I was 15 years old, and the sigh of relief when uh, there was a term that, that, I don't know if this is still popular or not, maybe young people, y'all can tell me after service, uh, DTR, we sat down to, to define the relationship, and I asked her if she would be willing to be my girlfriend, and I, had, I was nervous as all get out, and she said, of course, and then about seven years later, Casey said, I do, when she came down an aisle. That was great news. She could have ditched that mission at any point along the way. She should have known, but instead she said, I do. That was great news. And I can remember September 23rd, 2010, when Casey came into my office at work one day, um, and and she herself should have been at work, and uh, she came into my office and brought me a McFlurry, and I was like, hi. What are you, thank you for the McFlurry, this is great news. And then she plopped down with tears of joy, plopped down this positive pregnancy test on my desk. The great news of becoming a father. When May 4th, 2011 rolled around and we got to welcome our first child into the world. What a gift that is. And then again, when Jet was born on January 21st of 2014, what a gift children are. And I know many people pray for that and, it's, and, and, and struggle with that. And it is, it, is a, it is very real and very difficult and it's such great news. I know many people who in this very church, we have prayed for them to have that great news and they've been able to rejoice. And for those of you that struggle with that, I want you to know there are people who pray for you and who would like, love to encourage you. I can also remember Andrew Wilde calling me in 2012 on behalf of a church search team. They had, um, uh, I think, Doug, you can maybe correct me if I'm wrong on this. I think there were about 40 people all over the nation that they had um, uh, resumes for. And Andrew Wilde called me and he said, Brian, we would love to invite you to be the youth pastor of our church. Those are all instances of really great news I've been given in my life. But those are mere drops in the ocean compared to the immeasurable joy that we have of the good news of Jesus Christ who has risen from the grave and wants to have a personal relationship with broken people like you and like me. And that is incredible news. And we are called to share that with the world and pray for those who don't know him to be saved. So I'd like to submit five truths to help us understand what scripture teaches us about people who have never heard of Jesus and how we can perhaps run out and share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. And the first truth for us today is that all people have the knowledge of God. All people have the knowledge of God. At the beginning of Paul's letter to the Romans, he immediately began exploring um, how all people have the knowledge of God the Father. He says this in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 19. For the wrath of God is revealed, uh, revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness oppresses the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. In other words, God reveals himself continually and clearly to all people, not just those with Bibles, not just those who go to church, but God reveals himself to everyone. Listen to the way that Eugene Peterson in the message translation says it. He said, but God's angry displeasure erupts as acts of human mistrust and wrongdoing and lying accumulate as people try to put a shroud over truth. 
But the basic reality of God is plain enough. Open your eyes, and there it is. By taking a long and thoughtful look at what God has created, people have always been able to see with their eyes, as such can't see. Eternal power, for instance, and the mystery of his divine being. So nobody has a good excuse. So these verses, they tell us that every person on the face of the planet, from the man in the African jungle to the woman in the Asian village to the nomad in the remotest desert to the child in the Himalayan village of Kinnar, they all have knowledge of God because God has revealed himself to them, but not everybody says that they believe in God. And that leads us to the second truth. All people reject God. All people reject God. God reminds us in his word that we all have foolish hearts and futile minds. We have an inherently sinful nature that rebels against the knowledge of the glory of God. And, Ro- and the Apostle Paul reminds us yet again in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all sin. We all mess up. We all have idols. Whether it's the man in the African jungle or the child in Kinnar, we all reject God and the way that he has re- revealed himself to us. And it's a part of our fallen nature. We inherit this sinful state of being. And a part of the way that we know that is that nobody has to teach us how to sin. Nobody sits down and teaches us how to effectively sin. It's natural. It's a part of our natural being. So Paul continues this thought in Romans 10. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing throughout through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out into all the earth and the words to the ends of the world. In these verses, Paul is encouraging those of us being sent to remain faithful because there are people who will reject God. I think about the amount of people that probably would have rejected Paul's message in the early days of Christianity. People, the thousands of people in the book of Acts where he was met with so much hostility, yet so many people were being added to the number daily, those who were being saved because of his dedication and faithfulness to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to all people. And then that leads us to truth number three. All people are guilty before God. If you were to reread Romans chapters one through three, you would see that Paul refers to us in ways that are not exactly what we would want if somebody chose to write a letter of recommendation for us. Like if we're trying to apply for a job or get into a college or, or have you know, some kind of like something to build us up a little bit to, to somebody that doesn't otherwise know us, these are not verses that we would want to describe us. Listen to what he says. Paul uses strong words to build a, a case about our depravity. He says, um, and it uses adjectives, And things like sinful, they're shameful, they're evil, senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Is anybody feeling built up yet? We mistakenly view heaven as the default landing place for our eternal destinies. But if we're deserving of anything, it's not deserving of heaven because of our depravity, because of our sinfulness, because of the the way that we are evil in our hearts, because of the ruthlessness and faithlessness. But we are sinful and evil, but the salvation narrative does not end there. Truth number four is that God has made a way 
of salvation for the lost. And praise God that he does not leave us to our own devices on a trajectory of eternity spent away from Jesus. Instead, he made a way when there was no way so that we could have an eternity with him. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested or made known apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We are all sinners in need of, savior, in need of a Savior, and faith in Christ alone is the way to have salvation. And this is a truth that many believers have heard reiterated for decades, but the ramifications of it, they make, they make people beg questions like, well, if this is true, if it really is true, then that can't be good news for people who've never heard of Jesus. If people can't come to God apart from faith in Christ, then this truth is not encouraging for those who've never heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's absolutely right. And that's why it's important for people like you and me to go and be sent out into the world to make a difference to change these people's eternal um, eternities. Skipping down to Romans chapter 10, verses 19, it says, But I ask, did Israel not understand? Because Paul is, here is quoting back to um, Moses, who even know, knew this truth. First, Moses says, I will make you jealous for those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who do not seek me. I've shown myself to those who do not ask for me. But as of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary, and, 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 uh, contrary people. Romans, and all of scripture for that matter, is clear that faith in Christ is necessary for salvation. The prophets saw that, the, that God was making a way and seeking out those who were even not looking for him. This was Paul's entire testimony. He was formerly known as Saul, out there persecuting early believers until God got a hold of his heart and changed his, changed his life forever. That was Paul's testimony. He was not out there actively looking for Jesus. Instead, God got a hold of him and changed him. He, he did this for Paul. He did this for me. And he wants to do this for you. This leads us to the final take-home point to put a bow on all of this. Truth number five. Christ commands the church to make the gospel of Jesus Christ known to all people. Christ commands the church to make the gospel known to all people. So if faith in Christ is necessary for, for salvation, then it is of utmost importance that those of us who have a personal relationship with Jesus are sent to share the good news of Jesus Christ for the rest of the world. In Romans chapter 10, it lays out God's redemptive plan. And again, I will read one more time in Romans 14, uh, uh, chapter 10, verses 14 to 15. It said, And how are they to believe in him, whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You see, we are all called to preach the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ, not just pastors. So we do this in word. We do this in deed. We do this in the way that we treat and love one another. We do this in the way that we serve. We do this in the way that we worship. We do this in the way that we work. We do this by living out the very last words of Jesus that are found in at least five places in the Gospels and the book of Acts. Forty days after his resurrection and just before he ascended back into heaven, 
to sit at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus left us with his words that far outweigh the greatest mission that any general ever gave his troops to carry out. It's a mission that still continues for us today because the ramifications are so huge and the need is so dire still. In Mark 16, in Luke 24, in John 20, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, along with Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, Jesus says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. This was not a great suggestion. This was a great commission. Said another way, it was a great directive. And it's how God grows his kingdom. So the question is not, am I called into this mission? It is, how am I called and where am I to be sent? If we truly live out this passage in Romans, it is a process that repeats itself. And perhaps remember the, the, the linear graph that we showed earlier of, of the breakdown of, of, chap, of verses 14 and 15. Perhaps it would look a little more like this when we truly live it out. It would be a cyclical process where the more that we do this, the more disciples there would be being made, and the more those disciples would be going out and proclaiming, and his servants preaching, people hearing, hearers believing, believers calling, and then people are being saved, and then that next person goes out and carries it out. This is the way that Jesus called us to live out our lives, and there is no plan B. So practically speaking, how can we live this out? What did Jesus do? He went small. He started with a small group of people and he discipled them over three years and then told them to go out and to make more disciples. And they changed the world forever by living this out. Can you imagine for a moment what would have happened if they had not lived out the Great Commission? Imagine if they had said, you know what, football's on right now. Or I've got a lot going on. Or, you know what, maybe when my kids are out of the house, then, then I will become, I, I'll go out and live this out. I'll, I'll become one of these, these disciples making disciples. Like, I, I think I'll have more time for it at that point in my life. They, they put it all out on the line. They, they received this mission and they were sent and they changed the world because of it. If you were to research what is at the heartbeat of our church, you would find that our church's mission is to build followers of Jesus who are sent to reach others. So here are those practical ways that we can live this out of being sent. Number one, pray for uh, encounters with those who are not yet believers. Pray and ask God to give you one person a day that you could be Jesus to. Matthew 5 verses 14 to 16 says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill can't be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God, your Father who is in heaven. If our mission as Christians is to be sent, a part of that is simply letting the holiness of God shine through us and to make a difference right where we are. There are also mission efforts that you can be a part of through prayer and giving and serving as well. At the bottom of the Church Center app, for instance, there's a navy blue box. Um, if you don't have the Church Center app, I would encourage you to do that because you can find a lot of like information and events and things that's going on in the life of our church. At the very bottom of that, there's a navy blue box that says share and serve. And if you navigate 
within that box, you're going to find 12 local ministry partners that our church uh, supports financially and has people that are sending, uh, that we are sending out into those organizations to help partner with them and the great kingdom building work that they are doing. And you can pray for those. You can, uh, ministries, you can ask God that he would do a great work in those. You can pray for them. You can even go and serve alongside of them. What about internationally, though? You can adopt a missionary. If you leave through the main doors today um, and go out into our coffee bar on the missions wall, there's a table that is set up, and there are 12 international mission families, um, not fairies, families, that um, are all listed there, and you can grab one of those people. You are not, uh, you are not taking a name off of that to financially support them. Our church already does that. What you would be doing, though, is you would be saying, hey, I want to pray for this person. I want to have an email correspondence with this person. I want to be an encouragement to them. I want to uplift their family. I want to wish them a happy birthday on their birthdays as they are out across the world serving in the name of Jesus Christ, trying to share the gospel with others. So that's a great way that you can do it. Uh, maybe you do that as a small group. Maybe you do that as a family. Adopt a missionary. And number two is you can give financially um, to support the mission efforts locally and around the world. Number three is you can serve internationally. We have tons of ways that you can um, get involved with that, not just locally, but internationally as well. I had a, a conversation with somebody. I have time for this story. I'm just making sure I'm good on time. We've got plenty of time. Can we bleed into second service? Is that okay with you? Um, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. Um, I was having a conversation with somebody uh, in the church. Uh, they were here in the coffee bar earlier this week. And uh, they said, you know what, um, I had no intent of getting involved with uh, City Lights Ministry until after a sermon that I gave a couple years ago, um, I interviewed the founder of City Lights Ministry. Uh, we were up here on stage just talking back and forth, and it inspired him to want to, 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 to get involved. And uh, now he is over there multiple days a week building bunk beds for children that do not have beds so that families could be reunited with their children who've been taken from DSS because they're living on floors in their homes. He's over there building bunk beds multiple days a week. And he's also over there trying to recruit um, people who can give upwards of $650,000 to help them buy another facility because their ministry is expanding so much that they need more room to grow and more room to allow the children and families within the, 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 the area of Winston-Salem to expand their scope of what they're able to do. And he told me this, he said, Brian, I hate asking people for money. But that's what it's like when Jesus calls us to be sent. He's a part of a vision and a mission that is so much bigger than him. And we are all a part of that. Live missionally where, where you are. Jesus doesn't ask us to do everything, but he does ask us to do something. And that's where this last, last suggestion comes in, live missionally where you are. God has uniquely put you in a position, whether it's in a school classroom or in a job environment, in a work environment, with coworkers and people um, other students, other family members who, who do not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And if you were to live missionally where you are, you would be a light to those people. You would encourage them. You would pray for them. And you would allow the Holy Spirit of God to work in their lives through you for his glory. You and I have an average of around 70 to 80 years of life here on this planet. And during those years, we are tempted with all kinds of things that are good. Some things are bad, 
but things that uh, otherwise have no real eternal value. Things like making money or getting stuff or being comfortable or living well or having fun. Now, you and I also stand on the front porch of eternity. And we're, we're looking inside of the window. We're not quite there yet, but we're looking inside the window. And occasionally we have these glimpses of what heaven is going to be like. You and I will one day stand before God, though. And we're going to have to give an account of the stewardship of time, of the resources, of the gifts, and ultimately the gospel that God has entrusted to us. And when that day comes, I would imagine that we're not going to be wishing that we had given more of ourselves to living the American dream. We won't wish that we had acquired more money or or gotten more stuff or lived more comfortably or taken more vacations or watched more TV or pursued greater retirement options. But, But instead, I think that we will wish that we had given more of ourselves to live for the day when every nation, when every tribe, when every people, when every language will bow down around the throne and sing the praises of the Savior, our God, who deserves our eternal worship. Jesus is inviting us to take those reins and to be sent out into the world to make a difference for his kingdom. Will you pray with me? Lord, first, I want to say thank you. Thank you for sending us Thank you for sending not just um, one person, but multiple people in my own life who taught me at a young age about the love of Jesus Christ. And I know that I have not lived for you all the ways that I should, but I thank you for your grace and for your mercy and forgiveness. And thank you for drawing all of us unto yourself and giving us your Holy Spirit who gives us the courage and the words to share your words of truth and love with those who are around us. I pray, God, that you would stir our hearts to want to live on mission every day of our lives, no matter where we are. And it's heartbreaking to think that there are roughly five and a half billion people on this planet that don't yet know you as their Lord and Savior. But Lord, I'm convinced that if every believer truly goes out and shares the gospel with at least one person, then we'll start chipping away at that number, not because numbers are important, but because eternities are important to you, God. We realize that we need your spirit at work within us. And Father, if anyone is here today or watching online who does not yet know you as their Lord and Savior and is feeling that tug on their heart, Father, I pray that you would grip them so tight and allow your grace to wash over them. And if that's you, I would invite you to pray to God and say something like this, God, I realize that I am a sinner in need of saving. I realize that I have sin in my life and that and I turn that over to you and I place it at the feet of Jesus who died for my sins. I realize that I have fallen short of your glory and now I accept you as my Lord and Savior and I'm ready to live for Jesus all the days of my life. And for the rest of us, God, I pray that you would truly embolden us to live on mission as people who are sent into this world and that the name of Jesus would be made famous among the furthest ends of the earth because of the way that you are worked not only in us, but also through us in the mighty name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.